Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to go to verse 7. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, there is a black pew Bible in the chair in front of you. It looks like this. You can grab that and turn to page 1089. It goes from page 1089 to 1090. Uh, Chapter 2 is the big number, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going verses 1 through 7. Hear then the word of God from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who has the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May his word dwell richly in our hearts amongst us together. Father, we pray that as we meditate now on the word that you have just spoken to us, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your testimony and not to material gain. We ask that you would open our hearts to see wonderful, lovely, joy-giving, life-giving things in your word. We pray that you would give us the gift of repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And Father, we ask for a deep repentance Not merely the surface of repentance for actions, but the deep repentance of false beliefs and lies and hard-heartedness and coldness that we so easily engage in daily. Father, only your spirit can take your word and show us the glory of Christ for this. And so we ask for your help. Apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do absolutely nothing except sit here and waste our time. So, Father, we want to abide in your Son now. May your words abide in us that we might bear much fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, we ask you desperately. Amen. Many people think they know better when they're corrected by others. Some people know so well that not even God can correct them. One such man was was a king, the first king of Israel. His name was King Saul. King Saul was given very clear instructions by the Lord to wipe out all of the Amalekites. This is in 1 Samuel 15. 
to wipe them all out because they had sinned against God and against God's people earlier when they were wandering through the wilderness. And this was God's judgment um, for the people of the Amalekites. So God told King Saul to take his army and wipe them all out. So King Saul goes into battle. He defeats the army. He wipes out most people. He doesn't kill the king. He saves, saves some of the livestock, which is money in those days, when God said, kill it all. Kill all the animals, kill everything. He gets confronted by the, the prophet Samuel. And Samuel says, why have you disobeyed? And he says, I didn't obey. I didn't disobey. Look, I have all these animals. Or he says, I killed everyone, like God said. And then Samuel says, why do I hear animals? And he says, well, those animals are to sacrifice to the Lord. I want to honor the Lord with these animals. And then Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so when Saul is rebuked, He's given an opportunity, opportunity to repent. Yet he does not repent. He justifies his sin. He hardens his heart. He makes excuses. Can you relate? Making excuses when you're rebuked for your sin? No, no, it's not a sin. I, I had good motives. I, I have a good intention. When you actually disobey what God has said, that's what Saul did. There's another king, the next king, King David. He also disobeyed, maybe even in a more egregious way than even King Saul did. King David committed adultery. He took another man's wife. He murdered. He conspired to murder her husband to cover up the pregnancy. And then he too is confronted by the prophet Nathan. Nathan says, you're the guy. You're the sinner. You sinned. You deserve judgment. And David immediately melts. He repents. He asks God for forgiveness. He admits his sin. Two sinners, two confrontations, two opportunities to repent, and only one repents. Only one repents. How many second chances has God given you as a Christian? How many times has God confronted you as a Christian and called you to repent? How many times has he called us as a church family to repent? Opportunities don't last forever, but God does give us opportunities in his grace. He calls Christians and churches to resolve, to turn around, to repent afresh. Not to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I'm sinning. I feel so bad. And then next week, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I'm sinning. I feel so bad. And you say the same thing every day or every week, and you just get used to saying you feel so bad, and you never actually turn. You just make peace with your sin. You make peace with your compromise. That happens all the time. And here in this passage... God and the Lord Jesus Christ is giving us a fresh opportunity to repent. This morning, you individually and us as a church family are given a fresh opportunity to repent. In verse 1, it says, John writes, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So this letter and these seven messages are being written to the seven churches in Asia. This one is to the church in Ephesus. Now it says to the angel in the church in Ephesus. The angel is probably an angelic being who represents the church. Now Jesus is not just talking to an angel. He's not writing these letters to an angel, really, because in verse seven, he says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's not writing to angelic beings and saying, oh, this is not for me. This is for, for my angel. This is for Bethany Baptist Church's angel. No, it's for the church. It's for Bethany Baptist Church members. Amen. Jesus addresses us 
to, in regard to our church life together as those who are following Christ and are responsible for each other's discipleship. Now, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a major center for commerce, politics, and religion. It had the temple to Artemis. If you read Acts, I think, chapter 19, you see the riot that breaks out in Ephesus because they have a great temple there. So it's a religious center in Asia. It's a political center. It's a center for commerce and trade because it's on a trade route. So it's a very busy city. Not only that, it's a, what do they call them today? Um, not refugee city. What do they call them today? In sanctuary. sanctuary city. It's a sanctuary city. Here, this city in Ephesus, um, and now it's not, I'm not paralleling it with today. I know there's a debate politically. I'm not meaning to comment on that now, here. But in this city in Ephesus, it was a city that served as an asylum for criminals. And so Paul planted a church there in Ephesus in this place, and uh, later he charges the elders. He says, I'm not going to see your face again. You know that in Acts 20 when he says, um, I am free from the blood. I've pre preached to you the whole counsel of God. You know that, that passage with the Ephesian elders? He says, you guys are, are here. I'm going to leave now um, as I'm traveling through. This is up to you, but even fierce wolves are going to come in among your eldership, among your leadership to, to try to take over the church. And so this is the church in a city that is busy with different religions and idolatry and money and commerce and different cultures. It's a melting pot of sorts. And here, Jesus addresses his church. And he gives, us, he gives them really three commands, but there's one main command. So what's the main idea? I think the main idea you can find in verse five. Remember then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you, what? Unless you repent. repent. So you get three commands here, but one command is repeated twice. Which command is repeated twice? Repent. So here's the main goal. Okay, the main goal, the main idea is repent from sin so that Jesus does not remove our local church. Amen. That's what he's saying. Repent from sin, Bethany Baptist Church. And I'm going to tell you what the sin is later. Repent from sin so that Jesus does not remove his lampstand from our people. So he doesn't remove our local church as being a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to repent? Let me define repentance here. I, I defined it last time in a few sermons ago. I defined it, I defined it with the letters C-A-R for car. And that was just a little weird. Car and repent don't really, there's no, you know. So, um, this is another way of doing it. It's three A's, so triple A, which sort of relates to cars as well, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that they're the same letter, <laughs> okay? So, so repentance with three A's. What does it mean to repent? It means that you agree with God about your sin. Saul did not agree, right? He said, you, you disobeyed. No, I didn't. That's, you can't repent if you don't agree that it's a sin. So you need to agree with God that it's actually a sin. Then secondly, you need to approach Christ for forgiveness, Okay, you need to approach Christ. It's not just, oh, God, forgive me without Jesus. So you have to actually go to Jesus. If you're not resting in Christ, you're not repenting. You're just whipping yourself in the back to make yourself feel worse. That's not repentance. Okay, so repentance is agreeing with God that it's a sin, approaching Christ for forgiveness and feeling that forgiveness, and then asking God desperately that he would change you. Asking God that he would change you. If you haven't done those three things, it's not really repentance. If you're not asking God to change you, you don't really want to change. If you're not asking desperately, you don't really want to change. If you're not trusting in Christ and approaching Christ, it's not repentance. It's not Christian repentance. 
And if you're not admitting it's a sin, if you're not agreeing with God, you can't repent because you don't think you're sinning. You're justifying yourself. You're being defensive. So the call here is to repent, to agree with God on the sin, to approach Christ in the midst of it for, for forgiveness, and to ask God desperately to change you. That's the main call here is to repent. Now, he gives us four reasons. This text gives us four reasons why we should repent. And here they are. I'll give you the four here. The first one is, like usually, the longest. And then the other three are not as long. But that's just kind of how it works out with the verse breakdown as well. Okay? So repent because of what you have done. That's number one. Because of what you have done. Number two, because of what you may lose. Number three, because of what you will receive. And number four, because of who is calling. Because of who is calling you. Now, if you don't have paper and you want to take notes, I think we do have paper in the back. We should for notes. We didn't print that in the bulletin this week, but there are blank sheets of paper in the foyer. You can just go ahead and walk back there and grab it if you want to take notes. But again, here are the four reasons why you are to repent. Because, because, you, because of what you have done, because of what you may lose, because of what you will receive, and because of who is calling you to repent. All right. So let's go with number one. The first reason why you are to repent, because of what you have done. Because of what you have done. Um, what have they done? Well, they've actually done a lot of good things. Look at verse two. I know your works, your la- I know your works, your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. Jesus knows what they're doing. Verse 2 says, I know. Why does Jesus know? Because verse 1 says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Jesus walks among his churches in Los Angeles. He walks among his churches in America. He walks among his churches, among all the nation states in the world. He knows what's going on in each church. And so he says to this church, I know your good works. That's verses two and three and verse six. I know your good works. What good works? I know your works, he says. Your deeds. I know your toil or your labor. What does he mean? So I know, I know that you have done good things. I know you do good things, Bethany Baptist Church. I know you do good things, Church at Ephesus. Not only do I know you do good, do good things, I know that you labor. I know that you, are, um, that you are a doer and not a hearer only. You're not one who just reads your Bible and then you just stuff your head with knowledge. You actually do something with it. I know that's you. You guys are doers of the word and not hearers only. God did prepare us for good works, didn't he? That we should accomplish them, Ephesians 2.10. We believe in that. But the church was also disciplined. They were not only doers of the deeds. Jesus did not only know the deeds. He knew their discipline. He says in verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate evil people. If you have evil teachers, you have evil members, you have unrepentant members in your church, you discipline them. You practice rebuke one-on-one and then two and three and then you tell the, to the church and then after you tell the church, you excommunicate them if you need to in attempts to restore them to repentance. You are not a church that tolerates evil, unrepentant sin in your midst. This is a disciplined church, unlike the church at Pergamum in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and the church in Thyatira in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Those churches tolerated 
members and leaders who are not repentant. Not this church, not Ephesus. They practice loving restoration and church discipline. You know, there are many churches today that do not practice meaningful membership. They don't know what it means to be joined to each other as members of a church. And there are churches that do not practice church discipline. Our church needs to be one that practices membership and discipline. And you know, brothers and sisters, let me commend Bethany Baptist Church. You have spent a year and a half cleaning the rolls, haven't you? Amen. In our meetings. And that is part of, that's part of obedience. That's part of being disciplined to know who are we responsible for as members of the church. And to that, you ought to be commended for your attendance at these meetings and for you cleaning the roles. That's what churches ought to do. They ought to take membership seriously, responsibility for each other's discipleship. But this church was not only a church that was doing deeds and was disciplined. This church was also discerning. Look at verse 2 again. You have tested those who call themselves what? Apostles. And they're not. You have found them to be what? You have found them to be liars. This church was discerning. They could discern false teaching. They could discern false leaders. They, they knew good doctrine. Whether it was legalism of the Judaizers or lawlessness, like the antinomians who say, Christ forgave us of all our sins, so it doesn't matter if we sin or not because we're all forgiven. Whether they were lawless or legalistic, this church was a church that knew apostolic teaching and could sniff out error. They were doctrinally precise. Even in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And the Nicolaitan practice was a little bit sneakier. It looked very Christian. And yet this church could discern error. Lastly, in terms of their good works, he knew that they were determined. Look at verse 3. I know, Ephesian church, I know, perhaps, Bethany Baptist church, I know that you have persevered and endured what? Hardship for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. This church is suffering for Jesus. When they suffer for Jesus, when people try to intimidate them or silence them or give them the, the cold shoulder or fire them from work or threaten them or family, family members um, threaten to disown them or even actually disown them for converting and for gospelizing, they persevere and endure hardship. That's what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, Right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's what this church has done. They have persevered and endured hardship. They don't complain. They take it in the chin. They're, they're good, faithful soldiers of their commander. They were determined to obey even in the midst of hardship. So Jesus knows their works. A lot of good things here. Knows their deeds, knows their discernment, knows their discipline, and knows their determination. But Jesus knows something else as well in verse 4. He also knows their sin. He knows our sin. And what is their sin? And maybe even ours, verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. There's a sin. You have abandoned the love you had at first. What is this sin? If you're going to agree with God to repent, you need to know what the sin is. What does it mean, the, the love you had at first? Now, first here does not mean, I think this is good, a good translation, the CSB. It does not mean the first commandment. You know when they asked Jesus in Mark chapter 12, what is the first and greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the first commandment. Now, that wasn't the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. That wasn't the first commandment stated to Adam and Eve in the garden. So, or in Genesis 1 and 2. So what does it mean by first? It doesn't mean first in priority, though that is also true, coincidentally. It means first in time. This is the first, you had a love at first. There was a love you used to have and you've abandoned it. Remember that love you had at first? Yeah, that love, you abandoned that love. That's what I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had previously, if you like. Now, was the love they had at first, this previous love, this initial, I'll call it initial love, since it's the first, the love at first. They had an initial love that they no longer have. Was this initial love a love for the lost? Was it a love for each other? Or was it a love for God? How many of you say it's a love for the lost? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. How many of you say, okay, I saw a few of hands. How many of you say it's love for one another? Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. How many of you think it's love for fellow church members, fellow Christians? Okay, how many of you say it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Loving God, raise your hand. Okay, the majority here is loving God. Um, Greg Beale, who's one of my favorite commentators on Revelation, thinks it's loving the lost because being a light and a lampstand, you're being a light to the lost. I don't agree with Greg Beale on this, um, on this point. And Lance agrees with me, so that's good. Um, yeah, I don't agree with Greg Beale. I do think, I mean, the Bible does command us to love our neighbors, right? I just quoted verses. The Bible commands us to love one another, right? And the Bible commands us to love God. Not only that, the Bible even commands us or shows us that we need to love the truth, right? Psalm 1-2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 119.97 says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So yes, we should love God. We should love each other. We should love the lost. We should love the Bible. But if we're reading Revelation 2, you have abandoned the love you had at first. He does not specify which object of love there is. I think, and it's a guess, I think it's strategic. I think the silence is strategic. I think he does not define it because that's, he's not trying to limit it to loving the lost or loving your neighbor or loving one another or loving God or loving the Bible. He says, you, just, you were filled with love when you first came to me? You had an initial love for me, for my word, for others, for the lost. Remember that burden you had? You had that love and you lost it. It's gone. It's gone. So I think the love here is strategically open to saying it's the love for God and for others and for his word. It's just a general statement because love is indeed the core of the Christian life. You know, Genesis, not Genesis, Deuteronomy 6.5 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's the first command. That's, that's where we get it, right? Deuteronomy 6.5. In that same book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 13, it talks about testing a false prophet. You need to test whether what he's saying is true. So you need discernment here. You need to know your doctrine. But why do you need to know your doctrine? In, in Deuteronomy 13, one through five, he says, you need to know and discern a false prophet because the Lord your God is testing your love. Doctrine is for love. Amen. 
Discernment of good doctrine is for love. God is testing your love for him. This church went really far in doctrine and left their love behind. And that is a danger for all expository preaching, theologically driven churches and pastors to be so caught up in doctrine. And we want doctrine. We're not saying minimize doctrine. Today for our membership considered class, for those of you who are considering membership or want to, you're welcome to our membership considered class. We spent the whole hour reading our statement of faith. Doctrine, line by line. We are not a church that likes to play fast and loose with doctrine. And yet you can emphasize faithfulness to doctrine and to deeds and to determination and suffering and to church discipline and membership without love. I call this sin, it's an oxymoronic phrase here, loveless faithfulness. Loveless faithfulness. In our circles, we put a high, high um, value on faithfulness. I just was at a, the Gospel Coalition Conference this week, and it was called Enduring Faithfulness. Shepherd's Conference, John MacArthur's Conference next year, it is called Faithful to celebrate his 50 years of pastoral ministry. Nothing wrong with emphasizing faithfulness. I'll get to that later in the sermon. But you can have loveless faithfulness. This church did. Loveless faithfulness. So what does Jesus call them to do? In verse five, he calls them to what? Repent, right? Turn, agree that you are lovelessly faithful, quote unquote faithful. Agree with me, approach Christ, and ask for transformation. That's how I was defining what repentance is. Jesus calls them to repent. He doesn't use my three A's. He uses three R's, and it's in verse five. Three R's of what Jesus is calling you to do in repentance What's the first R? Verse five, first word. What's the first R? Remember. Remember what? Remember then how far you have fallen. Christians do well to remember. You do well to remember your sense of joy, your sense of relief when you first became a Christian. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you first became a Christian and how the Trinitarian, infinite, almighty, all-powerful love of God swept over your heart and you were overwhelmed with a sense of peace? And love, that initial love you had, remember that and remember how far you have fallen. You know the song, All I Have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost. You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld your love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Do you remember that love when you first came to Christ? One of our in, my, in a previous church I was a part of, there was a, a young member there who had just converted to Christ, and he was so passionate for Jesus. He would drive from West Covina, 30 miles into downtown LA to pick up homeless people, to bring them back to our church 30 miles away um, to, to Sunday service. And he would do that every week. And uh, many of us more experienced Christians thought, you know what, he's a new Christian. He'll get over it. 
and come down to normal Christianity. He's on that new Christian high. How wicked that I, and I'm guilty of that, I was guilty of that. How wicked that I would think that way and belittle the initial love a Christian has for his Savior and for his neighbors and for the lost and for the church. Loving God, what does it mean to love God? It means finding all of, all of your delight connected to, centered on, rooted in, and ultimately directed toward God. It's God-centered. Center, it's con- all, of your, all of your joys in life, everything you love about your family, your friends, your neighbors, um, everything from the most trivial thing of your favorite sports team to your favorite artist to your love for your family members to your love for your church, all loves are connected to God are centered on God, are rooted in God, and are ultimately directed toward God. I love the Lakers because I love God. And, in, and I love the Lakers into loving God. And if I don't, then I'm sinning. It could be that trivial. It is very trivial to love the Lakers. I sometimes could be idolatrous and say it's more significant than it is. But you can sinfully love your favorite sports team, or you can do it in a way that glorifies and honors God because you're loving God in loving them, even though they are O and 2. I love you, Lord. Yes, you can love the Lord in it. So remember, remember the love you had at first. But don't only remember the love you had at first. I see Carrie smiling because the Dodgers are in the World Series. Praise the Lord. Um, and we love the Lord in loving, loving the, the Dodgers. Yes. So remember. After remember, it's repent. The second one is Repent. Right? The second R here. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent. What does it mean to repent? I already told you what it means to repent. It means to turn from sin and turn to God. To agree with God that it's a sin. To um, approach Christ for forgiveness. And to ask God to desperately change you. Jesus is saying, agree with me, church, that you have been content with your outward expressions of faithfulness while you have been loveless towards me and others. Admit it. Agree with me. I just read Ephesians 4. um, Coincidentally, we don't believe in coincidence here. Providentially, right? Did you notice I read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 before our uh, communion, not communion, before our offering? And I I wrote these words, speaking the truth in love. And then it said at the very end, promoting growth of the body for building up itself in love. This is the church in Ephesus. Are you supposed to speak the truth? Yes or no? Yes. Are you supposed to emphasize good doctrine, sound doctrine? Yes. Are you supposed to hold people accountable to that truth in discipline? Yes. But speak the truth in love. Grow up the body in love. And if you don't, you have left your first love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have been lovelessly faithful. And brothers and sisters, if that is us, if that is you, you need to repent of loveless faithfulness. So remember where you've fallen, repent. And then thirdly, in verse five, the third R, you don't see a third R there, do the works you did at first. I would say return. There's a third R. Return to the works you did at first. Because you did them at first, you were doing it before. When you first got saved, Return back to those. Do the works you did at first. The Ephesian church initially did love um, when they did their doctrine. They spoke the truth in love. They held each other accountable in love. They suffered in love. 
And then it moved from love to just doing their duty. Instead of loving their enemies, we talked about last Sunday, right? Loving your enemies and praying for them. They just suffered patiently with a lack of love. And Jesus has returned. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you might say, you know what? This is why I can't be a Christian because Christians are hypocrites. They say it's all about love, yet they are cold-hearted. They don't love. Christians are hypocrites. They're fake. They put on fake smiles on their faces and they turn around and backstab you. One of my daughter's favorite songs right now is Fake Happy. Talking about, you know, putting on a fake smile and pretending you're happy. That's what Christians are. They're fake in their love. If you're not a Christian, that's what you feel and think. I could understand that. And I would not doubt that Christians have acted hypocritically, including myself. I just shared one where I was critically looking at one of my former church members about getting over his initial love. But I want to say three things to you if you struggle with Christianity because Christians are hypocrites. Number one, you're right. Christians do sin and Christians are guilty of hypocrisy from time to time. And so we have no excuse for that. We merely need to ask you for forgiveness. Admit that we've sinned, own our hypocrisy, and ask you for forgiveness. And so if this church in particular has sinned against you in our hypocrisy, I would love for you to let me know. I would not be defensive. I would love for you to let me know so that we can ask you properly and personally for forgiveness. Secondly, you hate hypocrisy. Jesus hates hypocrisy more. So don't reject Christianity because of hypocrisy. Come to Jesus because he hates hypocrisy more than even you do. And he sees it all. He gives us Revelation 2, 1 through 7 to confront hypocrisy. He gives us the book of James. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount after this brief um, stop in Revelation 2 and 3. And we're basically exposing religious hypocrisy because it's in our own hearts. And Jesus hates it more than you. And thirdly, the answer is not to reject Christianity, but to go deeper in Christianity. Martin Luther King Jr. was confronted um, with the fact that he would say that he's a Christian. Now, I'm not sure that Martin Luther King Jr. um, believed the gospel in terms of doctrinally correctly, but in regard to him being a Christian and a pastor historically and naming it, people are saying, you know what, why don't you give up Christianity? Because the people who are most racist towards you are the Christians in the South. Why do you still hold to your Christianity? And he essentially said, the answer is not to reject Christianity, but to go deeper in true Christianity. So if you're not a Christian, you're saying, you know what, Christians are hypocrites. I could never be a Christian. I just want to plead with you. you don't, the answer is not to reject Christ and Christianity. The answer is to find the true, deeper, real Christianity and real Christ. Children, listen to me, children, if you're here listening this, this morning. Jesus doesn't only care about your faithful obedience on the outside. He cares about your heart. Don't just obey your parents because they can spank you. That is a legitimate fear. But, but you also need to repent from loveless obedience. You need to obey your parents in a way of loving God and not merely because you don't want to get spanked. Employees, do you have anything to repent of? Christian brother or sister in the workplace, do you work as unto the Lord and not for men? Do you work because the Lord is loving you and giving, an opportunity, giving you an opportunity to love him through your tasks, responsibilities, and obligations at work? Or are you lovelessly compliant at work? Repent from loveless compliance at work and seek to work in a way that loves God and loves neighbor. Okay, so that's number one. 
the first and longest reason of why you need to repent uh, because, of, um, because of what you have done, namely loveless faithfulness. Secondly, repent because of what you may lose. Repent because of what you may lose. Look at verse five. And this is short, so it's just half a verse, 5b. Otherwise, I will come to you and do what? Remove your lampstand from its place. Let's just take those two ideas. Come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus will come as the judge. Now, some people say this means in the second coming, Jesus will come and judge the church. That's true. I don't think it's referring to the second coming. I think it's referring to Jesus coming, a conditional coming, or a local intervention where Jesus will judge local churches. Jesus does judge local churches. And why do I say that? Because of the second thing. Not, not only because he says, um, I will come to you, church at Ephesus, I will come to you, Bethany Baptist Church, but he says, and I will, when I come to you, I will remove what? Your lampstand from its place. I am the, Jesus says, is the one saying, I hold the lampstands. I walk among the lampstands. I hold the stars, and I will come to your church Ephesus, I will come to your church, Bethany Baptist Church, and I'll remove your lampstand from your church unless you what? Repent. Repent. So, so Jesus will come and judge and he will remove the lampstand. What does it mean that Jesus will remove a lampstand from its place? Clearly, Jesus has authority over the churches, but what does it mean to remove a lampstand from a church? Well, to know what that means, we have to know what a church is. What is a church? A church is a group of Christians exercising loving responsibility, loving and heavenly responsibility over each other's discipleship, both collectively and individually, in order to disciple their neighbors and the nations. It's a group of people who exercise loving and heavenly responsibility for each other's discipleship. And if Jesus is going to remove his lampstand from Bethany Baptist Church, what that means is he will make this church cease to be an effective, actual biblical, spiritual, heavenly church of the Lord Jesus for his gospel. This can mean that the church can go extinct. The church can die. Churches die, right? There are churches that die. And Jesus lets them die. Or Jesus can let the church continue in its operations, but no longer be the people of God with the spirit of God in their midst. So you could gather together every Sunday. You can call yourself a church. But in Christ's eyes, you're not a lamp. if he removes your lampstand, the Holy Spirit's not there, the gospel's not there, the, the work of God is gone from the gathering, from the people. That is a tragic judgment, isn't it? That you can gather every week with a group of people and you're not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're calling yourself the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? That the Holy Spirit doesn't live here? That he doesn't spread the gospel through you? That there's no heavenly love here? Just bitterness or, or nice uh, cordialities with each other, but no deep love for each other? That happens. The church that planted this church, does anyone know the church that planted this church? The name of that church? First Southern Baptist Church of Long Beach planted this church March 13th, 1949. 15 church members from that church planted this church. Do you know where that church is today? It's gone. Do you know what they did with their building? They sold it. Do you know to who? Jehovah's Witnesses. Churches die. Churches can be removed. The lampstand can be taken away from Bethany Baptist Church. It can. That's the warning. Repent because Jesus will remove the lampstand from churches. The Roman Catholic Church, 
Catholic, it's not really Catholic, universal. Church, it's not really a church. They gather every Sunday or whatever throughout the week, practicing with, with bread that they say turns into the body and the drink that they say transforms into the blood of Christ. That's not a church. The lampstand is gone. But they call themselves a church. And that can happen to even Protestant churches, even Baptist churches. We must repent from abandoning our initial love, loveless faithfulness. Why is this the consequence? Why, Jesus, aren't you a little extreme here? I mean, I thought you were love, right? Isn't Jesus love? Why are you removing lampstands? That sounds sort of harsh, Lord. Why, why this consequence? Okay, so we're not loving, but I mean, we are teaching the right doctrine. Okay, maybe we're not loving as we should, but we are suffering for you. I mean, we are disciplining people. We do have meaningful membership here. Isn't that enough? Why, why be so extreme that, that you'd remove us for loveless faithfulness? Why is this such a big deal? Answer, loveless faithfulness distorts the truth. I'm gonna give you three answers here. Loveless faithfulness distorts the truth. It conceals the light and it comforts decay. What do I mean by distorting the truth? Loveless faithfulness Activity without love distorts the truth. Paul wrote, knowledge, what? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Truth, doctrine, and discernment without love, what does it do? It puffs up, right? It puffs up. It's like cancer. What is cancer? According to one website, I'm no medical expert. Cancer starts when cells grow out of control and crowd out normal cells. This makes it hard for the body to work the way it should. So it's, it's cells that grow what? Out of control, right? So when the cells of good doctrine and discernment grow uncontrolled by love, cancer develops in the church, moving the church to doctrinal arrogance and mistaken measurements of faithfulness, spiritual maturity, and ecclesiastical vitality. Without love, the church will distort the truth and go deeper into sin. Secondly, second reason why Jesus will remove the lampstand, I think, is because activity without love conceals the light. Jesus said, the world will know us by our love for one another. If you don't have love for one another, the world doesn't know that you're his disciples. The light is darkened. You hide the light. The light is what helps distinguish the world from, from the church, from the disciples. It, it's our love for each other. That's why Jesus said um, that by our unity, that he prays in John 17, 23, that we may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The church's unity is rooted in the Trinitarian love of God. And when the love is gone, the unity of the church is gone. And when the unity of the church is gone, the light of the church is gone. And it is now darkness. Therefore, the lampstand ought to be what? Removed. A third reason why love, loveless faithfulness means your lampstand should be removed is that it love without, or activity without love comforts decay. The church in Ephesus had much to commend in which they easily found comfort and confidence before God. Doctrinal integrity, consistent activity, membership purity, and endurance of extreme persecution tempted them to assume that everything was A-OK. -okay. 
As the church was decaying and drifting from its initial love, this constant activity gave the false assurance, the false confidence that nothing was seriously wrong. Have you ever heard of gum disease? You know gum disease? Um, one New Testament commentator writes about gum disease and how you know, he was getting checked up by the dentist and he looks on the chart on the wall and there's all these stages of gum disease and he's like, which level am I on? And he's like, oh, you're on the one right before gum disease. And he's like, what? I brush, he, I brush my teeth all the time. I didn't, I didn't know I had, I'm that close. He's like, well, the dentist said, well, that's the thing with gum disease. You don't feel it until you already have it. You don't feel it leading up to it. So you need to floss every day. Ever since I heard that analogy, I started flossing more often. <laughs> I'm reading about Revelation and I'm starting to floss more. But I was edified, right? Um, maybe some of you will start flossing more. But the, the, the point here is that you, you could be comforted by the fact that you're brushing your teeth every day and you don't feel it. And because you don't feel it, you think nothing is wrong. All the while, your gums are on the precipice of disease. It's the same thing with a church. You're, 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 you have the right doctrine. You're practicing membership purity. All the while, love is gone and you're on the precipice of your lampstand being removed because you have false comfort and false standards. All right, so the one requirement and really, if you, you know, we talk about the nine marks of a healthy church. Really, you know what the one requirement of a healthy church is? Love. I mean, if, if you want to revitalize a dying church, the one thing you need to restore in the church is biblical love. And when that's gone, the church is hopeless. And when that's there, the church has all the hope in the world. It's faith working through love, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, or the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart in 1 Timothy, or is it 2 Timothy chapter 1? I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 1. Application here, repent from lovelessness or else our church's lampstand will be removed. I'm talking to Bethany Baptist Church. This is a church application. Bethany Baptist Church, we need to know that love needs to be the mark of our church. Love needs to mark our church. And Christians, if you're not a member of a church and you're looking for a church, find a church where they really love God and they really love people. If not, you need to run away from those types of churches and find one that has love. Number three, third reason why we are to repent. So repent, number one, because of what you have done, loveless faithfulness. Repent, number two, because of what you may, of, of what you may experience, namely Christ removing our lampstand. Number three, repent because of what you will receive. And what will we receive in verse seven? Verse seven, what will you receive if you repent from loveless faithfulness and conquer? Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give what? The right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what, what do you receive if you conquer by loving? You receive the tree of life. The tree of life is the symbol for eternal life, right? In the garden, Adam and Eve were there. They were kicked out of the garden. If they ate from the tree of life, they would live forever. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's the tree of life on both sides of the river. So if you conquer, if you repent and continue to endure in Christ as a true Christian, because that's what true Christians do, you will have the tree of life. You will get to eat from the tree of life. And where's the tree of life? In the what? In the paradise of God. It's where God lives, where there will be no longer any curse. In Ephesus, you have a criminal asylum where people are just kind of forgiven of their sins, their crimes, yet they are allowed to roam freely in the city. Does that make for a peaceful city? Can you imagine that? A lot of criminals just finding asylum there. What that does in that city is perpetuate crime, right? 
To have a true asylum of safety from crime, you need actually cleansing and forgiveness, right? In the true paradise of God, it's not that sinners aren't there, they are sinners, but it's a true asylum for criminals because they're forgiven of their sins and they're transformed by the spirit of God and the word of God to be those who love God and love others by his grace. Children, you're not a Christian just because your parents are Christian. Children, you must turn from your sins and trust in Jesus yourselves if you are to enter the paradise of God. Church members, you are called in verse seven to what? To the one who what? To the one who overcomes. What's the CSB? To the one who what? Conquers. Really, Revelation 2 and 3 is all about conquering. Okay? It's all about conquering. To the one who conquers. So, church members, you are called to be courageous, to conquer and fight sin, to fight, fight against sin in your life, in your church, in the other churches, in the world, in Satan and the beast, and all demons who attempt you and those around you. You must conquer, you must trust Jesus, and you must do it in partnership with your church family. It's interesting that Jesus says, he's, he's calling the church to repent, but he says to, to the how many who conquers? Does he say to the group who conquers? No, he says to the what? One. One. Even though the church needs to conquer and repent, only individuals go to heaven. You don't get saved as a church family. Just because your name is on our membership roll doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Right? You have to personally repent and trust in Christ. To the one who conquers to the one who conquers, to the one who repents from their loveless faithfulness, to the one who endures to the end, they will have the tree of life and the paradise of God. And so brothers and sisters, in this church, we need, we need every member of our church to be a church reformer. We need every member of this church to love each other even when others are sinning. Don't just look at the pastor and say, well, PJ needs to confront that sin because he's the pastor. What if I'm the one sinning? Then you need to be the one to confront, right? We need active participants in our church, not passive members who merely wait for others and then complain on the side. We need people engaged. Now, why is eternal life at stake here? This is kind of strange. If you don't conquer, you don't get, you don't get to eat from what? The tree of life. And if you don't conquer, you don't get to eat the tree of life in the what? In the paradise of God. In other words, if you don't conquer, you don't go to heaven. I thought we're saved by faith, not by works. What do you mean I have to conquer to go to heaven? What do you mean I have to repent from lovelessness to go to heaven? Well, if you're a true Christian, faith works itself out through what? Through love. And if you're not loving, you're not truly a Christian. Is that true? Does that sound a little harsh? Well, um, love is actually central to the Christian life. Faith is how you get saved or justified, but faith... If that's how you get life, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit causes you to, born, to be born again, and you do that through faith, the first thing you, you do is love after faith. Faith works itself out through love. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone, listen, this is a scary verse, but you need to feel the weight of it, okay? 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Do you hear that? If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. If you do not love God, you have not been born again. You have not trusted in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Loving is a true expression of eternal life. 
Love, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. That's 1 John 4, 7, and 8. God is love. If you don't love, you're not born of God, and you will not eat the tree of life in the paradise of God. You know how we get, how we get this far? The reason we get this far is because we have switched stories. We have put in our mind the main story of the Bible, the story of faithfulness, that God is the creator and Lord, and he makes his people to obey him and, and, and be faithful to him. But we have disobeyed him, so he sends his son to be obedient and faithful to him. And then those who trust in his son now become his disciples and his soldiers, and now they submit to their commander and chief, their Lord. Jesus is Lord, after all. And so they, they submit to their Lord, and they suffer for him, and they teach the right doctrine for him, and they spread the gospel for him because they love him as their Lord, and they look forward to the new heavens and the new earth when all his faithful army will march into the new kingdom. Is that the story of the Bible? Is that true? Yeah, that's true, right? But if that becomes the main story of the Bible, if that's your main amen, because I would say amen to that, if that's your main amen, then you can become loveless. Love was not anywhere in that. It was all faithfulness to your Lord. But is God primarily a commander of an army? No, he is a commander of an army. But who is God at his core? So one of the, kids, one of the questions I ask my kids in the catechism, who is God? And they say, and all Bethany Baptist kids should probably say this, who is God? God is the Father, loving and giving life to his Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God is a personal community of love. Amen. That's who God is. God is love. And so God creates, now, now look at this Bible story. God, out of his Trinitarian love, overflows with love because he wants other people to celebrate, celebrate it with him. So he creates a universe, and then he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He puts his son in the garden, but his son fails, so he's kicked out of the garden. And then he takes his other son out of Egypt, and he puts him in the promised land, but that son fails. And then, he, then his only begotten son is born of a virgin and enters into Israel, into the land, and he, and he obeys and then, and then he collects all these other people who trust in that faithful son so that they can enter his love. And all those who love the son and trust the son, they enter into a relationship where now they become children of the father who loves them. And so now they are lovers of God and lovers of neighbors and lovers of one another as family. And they love the lost and they love the word and they go forth. And then when they get to heaven, heaven is a world of love. That's the story. I would say that that story is more central because God's identity as father is more central than God's identity as commander. And if that's true, and you only emphasize that story and not this story, then you could check all your boxes of faithfulness and lack love and repentance. But if this is the main story, that God is Trinitarian love, then it makes no sense that anyone could be in that heaven without love right? That's why if you don't repent from loveless faithfulness, you're not really a Christian. Love is a distinguishing mark of those who are God's people. So that's the third reason why you need to repent. And the fourth reason, okay, the fourth and last reason. So repent because of what you've done. Repent because of what may, God may do to you if you don't repent. Repent because of um, what you'll receive, namely eternal life. And fourthly, repent because of who is calling you. And that's verse one. Who's calling you in verse one? 
Write to the angel of the, uh, of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who's that? What's his name? Jesus. Repent because Jesus is the one calling you. Jesus is the one who holds the lampstands. Jesus is the one who, um, who calls us to repent. And let's be honest. If, if we need to love God in order to be with God forever, have we loved God faithfully? Have we loved God as our overwhelming priority? Haven't we failed in this? I mean, our hearts are weak. Our hearts are hard. Our hearts are distracted. Our hearts are prone to wander. We cannot love God as we ought to love. Even as Christians who have the Holy Spirit and have the word of God in us, we too have failed to love God as we ought to. And so therefore we deserve, because our sins, the wages of sin is what? Death. We deserve to be cut off from God and thrown into hell for our loveless, quote unquote, faithfulness. That's what we deserve. We deserve to be cut off from the paradise of God, to never take one bite of the tree of life. And yet... There is someone who loved as he ought to have loved. There is one who loved God perfectly and loved God consistently. He even loves Christians presently, according to Revelation 1.5. He walks among the seven golden lampstands and he holds the seven stars in his right hand. He is indeed the light of the world who would never, who's the only one who deserves to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And yet this light of the world who holds the lampstands in his hand, he hung on a cross in darkness. Jesus' lampstand, in a sense, was removed on that cross. God pours out his wrath on his son on the cross as a lampstand is removed from the one who should never have a lampstand removed, the one who never stopped loving. His lampstand is removed and he is judged and damned in darkness so that everyone who would trust in this resurrected Savior would have love and life and have a light that would never be removed. That's the gospel, that Christ would die for us and have his light removed for us, at least temporarily, to save us from our sins. And so that's why we repent, because of the one who's calling us. It's our Savior, the light of the world by darkness slain, so that we might have life. If you're not a Christian, I invite you this morning to receive this love turn from your sins and receive the love of God and forgiveness of God in Christ. Repent and trust in Jesus. If you're a Christian, don't focus on your love. Focus on Christ who is lovely and that will stoke your love. Church family, love one another by speaking the truth and love to each other. Speak Christ to one another. One of the things Jonathan, there's two things Jonathan Edwards said in his sermon on this about a loveless church. I wish I could tell you all five. I'll tell you two just because they're kind of my hobby horses a little bit. The first one he says is, um, in a church that lacks love, they, start, they, they talk about everything but God with each other. They talk about sports, they talk about the weather, they talk about health, they talk about family, but they don't talk about God with each other. They don't talk about their sins with each other. That's why I make you guys do that two-minute thing after the service, after the sermon, so that you learn to talk about God with each other. And the second thing he says in the loveless church is, they don't take the Lord's Day seriously anymore. It's like any other day in the week. They plan other things in that day. They plan all kinds of activities in that day. And so they don't have a a regular renewal of their love for God. And so I just want to encourage you, church family, to come to Sunday morning services and come to Sunday evening services and set apart a day to love God and to renew your love for God as a church family. 
to speak the truth in love for one another, towards one another, for God's glory. So to conclude, Jesus calls us to repent. Why? Because you've obeyed without love, your st- because your lampstand might be removed, because you will eat from the tree of life, and because Jesus is Lord. He's the crucified and risen Lord over your life. If you do not repent of loveless faithfulness, you will grow in your delusion of thinking all is well because of your doctrine, deeds, and discipline, and determination, and your duties. You'll grow in pride and hardness of heart. Christ might remove our lampstand, and we won't experience the joy of helping others follow Jesus. Worst of all, if you don't repent, you'll miss out on the tree of life and show that you never really were a Christian. However, if you remember, repent, and return to the love you had at first, you will increase in your doctrine, discipline, determination, and dying to self. You will shine the light of Christ as a church family in this dark world. You will eat from the tree of life with ever-increasing joy. Therefore, let us repent from lovelessness and return to joy in the Lord Jesus. Just like David, and unlike Saul, we have an opportunity right now to repent. Let us take this opportunity to turn from loveless disobedience and enjoy fresh grace. Let's pray. I'll give you 30 seconds or so in silence to pray on your own and gather your thoughts before the Lord in a moment of silence. Father, forgive us for our loveless faithfulness, our loveless compliance, our loveless quote-unquote obedience. We admit our sin. We come afresh to Christ, our Savior, who died for us and rose for us. And we ask you desperately that you would change us, that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and be overwhelmed by your Trinitarian love for us in the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.